The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy <coughs> professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about data breaches and what the courts are doing and whether or not victims of a data breach are really considered victims under the law. And it's pretty interesting. I read this article called Data Breaches in Standing, a 38 million victim question. And it's written by these two gentlemen who are coming on the show with us. And let me introduce them to you. We're going to enjoy speaking with them and their brilliance. First, we have Eric Syverson, who is a litigation partner at Beverly Hills office of Rains Feldman LLP, and he co-chairs the firm's Internet and Digital Media Practice Group. And along with him is Scott Lesowitz, who is an attorney also at that same firm, Rains Feldman LLP, and he's a member of the Internet and Digital Media Practice Group as well as the General Litigation Practice Group. And I have lots more about them on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, but you can also find out more about them at their website as well. And um, so this, I'm going to ask them for that website in just a second because I just lost it. (laughs) But I want to welcome Scott and Eric. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great. Thanks for uh, having us, Mari. We appreciate it. Yeah, so before I forget, will you just tell us your website uh, for your... Sure. We actually have uh, two websites. We have a firm-wide website. We're a full-service law firm in Beverly Hills of close to 40 lawyers, and that website is rainsfeldman.com. My practice group devoted solely to digital media and Internet law is at cybersonlaw.com. Dot com. That's S-Y-V-E-R-S-O-N law dot com. Perfect. Thank you so much. And that's that's up on our website, too. So we are ready to go. So let's uh, why don't you tell each tell me a little bit about your backgrounds and how you got into Internet privacy? H- how did that start? Let's start with uh, Eric. <sighs> 
So I graduated from Loyola Law School in Los Angeles in 2002, and I started practicing with a general commercial litigation group doing all sorts of nuts and bolts civil litigation from partnership disputes to um, to um, uh, you know construction litigation uh, around 2006 2007 uh, I had a case come across my desk as an associate that really um, provoked this interest that I, I currently have and, and have developed a practice around internet law I had a case where I represented a a uh, plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills who had been sued for, for of all things, copyright infringement. Now, this might sound very uh, unusual Strange. initially, uh, <laughs> but the client, what he had done is he had, as many plastic surgeons uh, do, uh, they have a website to showcase their work. And uh, he had pictures of uh, various plastic surgery procedures, and what had happened is that his web development team in India, uh, not knowing the intricacies of uh, American intellectual property oh. law, had actually uh, copied those pictures from a very prominent plastic surgeon's website in the oh. Midwest. Oh, and my so, <laughs> yeah. So you can you can imagine uh, it was a very interesting uh, case, and it really sparked this interest that I. I have an internet law, and with respect to intellectual property, it's so difficult to create, but it struck me as how in the uh, digital age, how easy it is to uh, infringe with a click of a mouse. You can uh, copy and paste a photograph, for example. Yes, exactly. I had a woman who called me who was a very prominent model in, uh, in the United States, and someone put her head on a model in Germany, and was stealing her identity that way. So, so you're right. I mean, with Adobe and everything else, you can do anything you want on the Internet. So how about you, Scott? How did you get into this field? Um, I went to uh, Harvard Law School, and when I was there, I was involved with the uh, Berkman Center for Internet and Society and uh, took courses on Internet law that talked about, uh, dealt with privacy issues and, uh, you know, Internet law in general. Um, back then, it was very burgeoning new field. Uh, it still is a new field, but not, not quite as new now. And uh, then after law school, I worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in San Diego. I was a federal prosecutor. And there, uh, you know, the work involved computers, involved uh, Internet. Uh, you know, frequently we'd have, uh, you know, even in cases that were involving uh, drugs or, or, you know, those types of issues, there would be uh, issues of obtaining evidence from, from the Internet, okay. obtaining in, uh, information and evidence from cell phones. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, funny when you're there how willing people are to put incriminating information about themselves on the Internet. Uh, one of the early cases I had was a uh, drug importation case, and we were uh, cooperating with somebody, and she said, uh, you know, I have the people that I'm talking to you about who I was working for, I can show you their, their MySpace page. Uh, back then, people still used MySpace. Right, right. And uh, the, we went to the, so, so she, she took us to the MySpace page, and there was the uh, person that we were targeting. Uh, he had pictures of himself with guns, with money, with, mm. uh, with drugs, women. It was uh, like, like out of a, uh, you know, it was kind of a wannabe uh, movie uh, guy. <laughs> and... So, uh, you know, it was, 
it was pretty bad evidence for him, and it was just right there because you know anyone who has access to that MySpace page was able to to show it to us, and we didn't even have to subpoena it. Uh, oftentimes, we did have to subpoena information, and, and you know, uh, usually as law enforcement, we we got uh, more priority. But even then, um, you know, the big internet companies tend to be protective of their uh, clientele, uh, understandably so, and so they would try to make you jump through hoops and not just uh, you know have an open book to to you, even as uh, law enforcement. Yeah. And then when I got out of the U.S. Attorney's Office and went in started working uh, as a civil litigator for uh, a private firm, I have, uh, I have a distinguished uh, background as a uh, self-taught computer programmer. Uh, I w- actually used to be a professional programmer. When I was in high school, I was paid $9 an hour to <laughs> do uh, C++ programming. And at the time when I was in high school, that was just you know, an uh, absurd amount of money for me. Yeah. And uh, it was that was back in the dot com craze where uh, anybody who knew any bit of computer programming could be hired. Mm-hmm. And one day I showed up to work, and the uh, you know this was as the dot com bubble was busting in the uh, around two thousand. And I just showed up to work, and the company was just shuttered up. And I think they still owe me about one hundred and eighty dollars for my last paycheck. <laughs> um, and so uh, when I got into to uh, private practice, I was. You know, I was staffed on cases that involved uh, computer, you know, computer infringement, uh, software infringement, mm-hmm. video game infringement, mm-hmm. uh, anti-cyber squatting issues. Uh, I guess because I know some HTTP that somehow, you know, it was I had a, a bit of a leg up on uh, other people. Uh, I, it's uh, definitely, uh, in my experience, most attorneys who work on IP issues, even computer-related issues. Um, don't themselves know much about computer programming or how a website works, et cetera. So even having a little bit of knowledge gave me a little bit of a leg up, and so I tended to start doing those cases and then just ran with it. So, yeah, no, it's um, wonderful. Yeah, whenever I speak to somebody who who's a security, privacy you know, expert before they even go to law school, it, it just really makes a huge difference. And, and technology is so much a part of everything now, whether it's, I mean, even family law, if somebody's, you know, going to find out where they're, you know, go online and find out where their spouse is hiding money <laughs> or whatever. So, yeah, it's, it's every field. But, you know, what was really intriguing for me is when I read your article was about the recent decision in in Ray Adobe. Let's talk about that because, you know, so many of my listeners driving by and we have like a little, um, you know, here in Aliso Viejo is like a little mini Silicon Valley. And um, so we have people who are really techie here, but we also have, you know, students and we also have other business people. And many of us get those security breach letters all the time. You know, some, some people will, when I do a presentation, I'll say, well, how many of you have gotten a security breach letter or five of them or 10 of them, you know, in this year? So let's talk about what happened in that case, Scott. Yes. Yeah, so um, Enri Adobe involved a tremendously large hack of the Adobe uh, company. Uh, approximately um, 38 million people uh, were had their credit card information stolen uh, in the in the uh, by hackers, uh, likely uh, it's it's probably turned out the hackers uh, originated in uh, China, and the uh, plaintiffs uh, you know so naturally uh, um, there's a lawsuit. California 
um, besides a lot of computer companies being located here, California is a common uh, and good place for litigation because California has some of the best uh, online privacy protection uh, statutes on the books. Right. Uh, in, to protect uh, users, uh, companies here have a duty to, um, uh, to protect the uh, you know, uh, computerized information, and they have to uh, adhere and, and can't neg- uh, negligently uh, stray from their own privacy policies. So a lot of uh, lawsuits are brought here, or even when they're not brought here, they still sue under California law. And so what happened in Riadoba, you had this massive data breach, and then a group of individuals filed a class action lawsuit. And the interesting question in Enrique Adobe that was addressed uh, in this, this was a decision from 7th, September of 2014 in the uh, Northern District of California. So it's, uh, that covers uh, the, the Bay Area. And the question was, most of these people could not allege that they actually had money stolen from them from the hackers. What the lawsuit mainly pertained to was, hey, our information was stolen, and now we're at you know, extreme risk of, of having the money be stolen from us because our information is out there. It's, 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 um, uh, a lot of times in these hacking cases, the information is then posted on the Internet, et cetera. And so they sued basically saying, we want money because we're likely going to be stolen from and because we have to take extra precautions uh, to prevent being stolen from. And the uh, Adobe attempted to get the case dismissed as a matter of law under, uh, you know, for failure, for lack of stand- constitutional standing, saying, uh, hey, you know, under U.S. law, you have to have suffered an injury in fact in order to bring a lawsuit. Right. And here your damages are too speculative because no one's stolen money from you yet. And what the court in, in Ray Adobe uh, said was that even though the people couldn't allege that they currently had money stolen from them, the fact that they had to spend money to uh, prevent identity theft now that they were uh, more likely to be, uh, uh, have their information stolen, and also because there was a, uh, enough of a likelihood that their information would be used to steal money from them that they could sue. And the interesting language in uh, using the opinion was that the, um, it appears that even just the threat of future uh, theft or misappropriation of your, your data is enough, even if you did not buy a, for instance, go out and buy a, a you know, $100, $200 uh, you know, data um, identity theft protection uh, software. And the, um, uh, one of the interesting things about the case is that it's, it created a district court split because the Southern District of Ohio earlier in 2014 in the uh, Galleria versus Nationwide Mutual Insurance uh, Corp, Corporation case had virtually identical facts and said, no, the fact that you um, are at higher risk of having your information stolen after, um, after our system, the systems were hacked, that's not enough. You, know, you, you need to uh, prove that essentially it's a, uh, the damages are, are certainly impending um, and that's not enough. And uh, so you have a, bit of a, you have a, a clear district court uh, split here, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens once you have the first uh, appellate decision um, rectifying this. 
I have a question. So in the Adobe, it was just contact information with credit card numbers. Is that correct? Yeah. It, the it wasn't only, social security numbers or other other information, was it? No. It was um, the decision only speaks about credit card information. Yeah. Um, interestingly, yeah. the Ohio case that uh, found that there was no standing there, there was. Uh, Social Security information taken as well. Um, so uh, that that's yeah. actually one of the interesting things about me when I was reading the in Ray Adobe case, I, and it was not addressed in the case, was if it's credit card information that's stolen, you think that uh, the people would wind up just changing their credit card numbers pretty pretty shortly thereafter, but that was not discussed uh, in the case. Right. Well, the credit card numbers, remember, they're covered by the Fair Credit Billing Act, so they're not going to be responsible for any, any fraud at all as long as they tell them within two months. But the debit card is a, is a little bit different if they, you know, because a lot of people probably use debit cards and that's going to be the Electronic Funds Transfer Act. That's going to be harder. But to me, when it's, I, you know, it, it just makes no sense to me that if it's social security numbers, that's far more egregious and far more, um, uh, you know, dangerous for people to become victims of identity theft. I, you know, I mean, I had testified on a case in, um, in, uh, New Jersey, in which there were, everything was stolen. You know, this was years, you know, several years ago. And the court said, no, because they haven't had any damages yet. And I was trying to uh, equate that to people who are exposed to, um, you know, to asbestos, that they have a higher risk. And these people have a higher risk, but that court didn't buy that. <laughs> But so this is fascinating to me that when it's a credit card that or a debit card, which isn't quite as egregious, that that this court said this. So it'll be interesting. But I think that a lot of the courts don't really understand really uh, identity theft enough to even make these decisions. You know, it's uh, it's, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, in the Galleria decision, the uh, the Ohio Southern District of Ohio decision. Uh, one thing that, that the court latched on to was that the uh, uh, pleadings even acknowledged that even when the Social Security number is taken, the chance of being an identity theft victim, while, while much higher, is still, uh, is still around 20%, a little bit less than 20%. And so the court said that's not enough. Um, and uh, uh, they apparently read uh, a recent Supreme Court case, the Clapper case, um, Okay. As with, with a certainly impending standard, apparently they want something, you know, uh, I guess more than 50%, how much more than 50%, uh, it's not uh, quite clear. Because uh, there, there was earlier cases that uh, would seem to be more along the lines of uh, Enri Adobe that would, it would you know, not need to be 70, 80, 90%. Yeah, and you know what the joke of that is? Because this is one of my expertise. The joke of it is is that you don't even know how many people become victims of identity theft from that breach. Um, there, it's the not everybody reports to law enforcement. They don't all report to the Federal Trade Commission. So you don't even really always know. You you know. And sometimes the bad guys, when they get, you know, millions of 
of profiles, they sell it off and people use it years later. There's been all sorts of research by in Los Angeles by the Los Angeles Police Department to show that sometimes that information isn't used for two, three, four years. So I think it's really hard to even come up with a percentage of how many become victims of identity theft. But anyway, it's fascinating to me. But let's ask Eric, what what steps can companies like Sony, okay, Sony had, they lost um, employee information, right? Lots of employee information. So let's talk a little bit about Sony and what you think companies should do to limit their liability. Well, I think what you're going to see develop over the next few years is um, companies treating uh, data and data protection much in the same way as they started to um, treat a flurry of employment claims that developed in the 70s and 80s. And and what I mean by that is... um, Specialized procedures for handling um, data breach issues internally um, and uh, procedures for taking uh, employee complaints regarding lapses in security mm. and documenting those and um, and treating them seriously. I think one of the issues, um, certainly a, a bad optic from a litigation perspective in the Sony case, uh, are reports of dismissive comments by Sony executives in the media prior to this breach uh, regarding expenditure of funds on data security. Uh, you also have internal emails that have come out of employees um, to executives at Sony saying, hey, um, we've got a problem here. We've got a hole in our network. Um, the problem for a company like Sony later on uh, with a case like Inray Adobe on the books and the possibility of negligence-based claims right. uh, getting past a motion to dismiss uh, for lack of standing, for example, um, is that, uh, you know, if, if, if the company isn't, spending the funds to tighten up security, they're breaching their duty, and it could lead to large negligence type of damages. So what you want to do if you're a company like Sony is say, hey, listen, we, te- we, we, we treat uh, data breach issues very seriously. We have internal procedures set up to document complaints about data security, and we also spend the money to hire the best uh, professionals and to utilize the most secure networks and the latest technology to protect our data. You know, data breaches are inevitable. Uh, that's the sad fact. Yes. Um, just mm-hmm. as just as just as car crashes on the freeway are inevitable, they're going to happen. So then the analysis starts to turn towards issues like um, protecting yourself from negligence claims and also a developing insurance market. So if you're if and there is a, currently a developing market for for cyber law policies and cyber law protection. So right. you want right. to you, you want to obtain a, an appropriate policy to provide protection, and you also want to have a defense in the negligence case. That what else could we have done? Um, the hackers are usually one step ahead of us, but we did everything that we could do. We hired the best, and we spent as much money as uh, as we could to protect ourselves. 
Exactly. I remember uh, several years ago, um, a big insurance company had an internal breach of, of employee information, and uh, and they were very proactive. Like, they brought me out to do workshops for, for their people, for that particular, uh, you know, that particular area. Uh, that that had the breach, and it wasn't you know nationwide, but it was in one state, and um, and they didn't have a lawsuit. They didn't have a lawsuit. They took care. There were some victims of identity theft, and they took care of it, and they were very good about it. And then they cleaned up their act in terms of some of the uh, the the protections, uh, the data protections. So, yeah, I and and you're right. I know that AIG has a. Um, has a insurance policy for cyber insurance but the the challenge is it's mostly for big companies and big companies have to follow certain procedures or they're you know the they won't get the insurance or if they don't do what they said they were going to do the insurance can pull out when they have a breach so it's a little bit harder for small and medium-sized companies to to do this kind of stuff but it's if even if you're a mom-pa store uh, if you have sensitive data on people and you're doing online commerce, you're going to still be responsible. So it's it's a problem. What can someone do, Eric? I wanted to ask you this. What can someone do who's been defamed on the Internet to protect himself or herself or their or their company? Well, that's really interesting. It's, it's you know, uh, not exactly a data breach, but another um, rising problem that my office uh, sees an awful lot of. We have a high volume of cases involving uh, internet defamation, which, um, you know, doesn't target your credit card information, for example, or your social security uh, information. But, um, you know, similarly, it causes um, real damage, and that's reputational harm. So, you know, you don't have to own the New York Times anymore to defame someone and cause real harm. Uh, you simply need a, a Twitter account or a um, or a WordPress blog. So, um, what do you, you know, think about Yelp? Yelp and some of those other companies that uh, you know, Angie's List and things like that. So the good the good news bad news scenario with regard to what we call review sites um, for the review sites themselves, they have relatively ironclad protection and immunity for defamatory acts committed on their site by their users, as long as they don't actively participate in it. So if someone defames your uh, pizza parlor uh-huh. on Yelp and says, don't go to that pizza parlor, they poison the pizza, uh, if you're the pizza parlor, uh, I can't sue Yelp for that. What I'll have to do is sue the person who actually posted it. Now, the problem that poses um, is it requires uh, often... Uh, obtaining digital evidence to prove who actually posted because right. many of these sites allow essentially anonymous postings under pseudonyms and their information and account information is not verified. So it's uh, in a number of scenarios it's cost prohibitive. Uh, however, in a lot of scenarios where it's a business and uh, or um, high-level executives. Um, and the damages could be in the millions of dollars. It makes sense to to pursue litigation. But, um, you know, a few sort of practical tips that the average um, Joe Sixpack or, you know, Main Street business owner uh, can do uh, that I've noticed is, you know, really take ownership of your Internet reputation and really get involved, embrace it, open up 
social media accounts. Take control of that first page of Google. You know, if if you're a small business person and you and you take control of social media and you're actively involved, you know there might be some first page uh, Google penetration of a defamatory review here and there. But on balance, um, you're going to own that space, and it will be uh, and it will be positive. And the other thing that well, I well, are you talking about doing a blog or what are you talking about in terms sure. of owning that space? Is that what you're talking blog, about? Sure, blogging, blog, or writing blog. articles, whatever. Is that what you're saying? Sure, blog, Twitter account, Instagram. I mean, there are so many. Okay. Um, there are so many. Uh, user-friendly ways that have um, what I call Google juice that will get you that high placement on on a Google search that that uh, consumers or small business owners uh, can utilize. And the other thing that I would say is to keep a keep a perspective. Uh, we see uh, oftentimes we get calls from business owners who have a hundred great reviews, and there's one. Um, if not defamatory, very unflattering review. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it might sound easy to say, but a lot of times I just tell people to keep perspective because if you engage that one rotten apple, uh, there's a real chance for something called the Streisand effect, right, right. which will just uh, illuminate this poor review, whereas if you had just left that rotten apple alone, it would have uh, fallen by the, the wayside and been, been uh, unnoticed. Well, that just that's the perfect way to end. We are just out of time. I want to thank Eric and Scott so much for joining us. So why don't you just give your website, Eric, and it's time for us. Well, you have two websites. Give those, and it's time for us to go. Sure. So it's RainsFeldman.com. And for Internet-specific law issues, CybersonLaw.com. S-Y-V-E-R-S-O-N. L-A-W.com. Well, thank you, Eric Syverson and Scott. Leslie, what's your wonderful, and we will have you back again. Please keep in touch. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having us. Great. We okay. look forward to it. Yeah. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine at KUCI.org. On the net, I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. for Privacy Piracy and visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.